0: Debbie, to come forward and, and read this morning's text, which is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. I do just want to introduce uh, the text. And the way I want to introduce it this morning is by giving you um, up front um, what I think is sort of the feel of, of the text. I remember one of my favorite pastors was talking about a text, and he used the word atmosphere. He said it's very atmospheric, and he said it in a Scottish accent, which I won't try and imitate, but what he was talking about was the feel of the text, the way the text felt, the atmosphere of the text, and I want to give you uh, this morning, as we begin, what I think is the feel of this text that we're going to look at, Mark 12, 28 to 34, the atmosphere of this text, and it's this, I think the best word for the atmosphere of this text, is the word refreshing. There's a refreshing feel to this text. Firstly, the question is refreshing. Remember the context for Mark 12, 28. Jesus is in the middle of this sort of Q&A. You know the ones, you've probably seen YouTube clips of these, where you have sort of the college hall, and then there's the person on the stage, and then they have the microphones in the aisles, and anyone can walk up to the microphone and ask their question. Jesus is in the middle of something like that, and the last question he got asked was a very silly question, wasn't it? The Sadducees come up and they talk about this woman who was like a black widow spider. She, you know, this guy had seven brothers and he marries a, she marries one of the brothers, he dies, no offspring, and on they go with this really silly. Story and then they ask at the end, whose wife in the resurrection will she be? So you have the silly question, and um, and some in the crowd may have groaned as they heard that stupid question. Just think about it. Here's Jesus himself, and you're just wasting his time. You're wasting everybody's time, and 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 then the scribe comes to the microphone, and he asks this really good question. It's not a silly question. It's a wonderful question. Which commandment? is the most important of all. And and if you were in the crowd, you probably would have thought to yourself, great question. I want to know the answer to that. Um, So this question is refreshing. Secondly, the scribe himself is refreshing. So far, the questions have come from where? They've come from a place of animosity, opposition to Jesus. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, None of them have any affection whatsoever in their heart towards the Lord. They just want to trap him. And if you were there in the crowd, you would have felt that. You would have felt their animosity. But what would this have felt like when the scribe asks asks his question? What would he have felt like? How would he have come across? Seeing Jesus and the scribe interact, what would that have felt like? We actually have a sense of what it would have felt like because Peter is behind Mark's gospel. And notice what Peter saw. He saw this wonderful mutual admiration on the part of the scribe and the Lord. Notice verse 28 and verse 34. Seeing that he answered them well. So there's this admiration from the scribe toward the Lord Jesus. But the admiration is mutual because verse 34, Mark says this, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely. So Jesus looks at the scribe, and there's also this admiration. He sees that he answers wisely. So both of them admire something in the other, but it's more than admiration. It's affection. You can tell the scribe. If you just feel his answer, you can tell the scribe loves what Jesus says. Here. You are right, teacher, he says. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You can tell the scribe loves what Jesus says here. And you can tell that Jesus loves the scribe because he hears what the scribe says and he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not far from me. Come closer, he says to the scribe. I love you. And Peter saw all of that take place. On the heels of all this mean-spiritedness going on, there's this wonderful moment of mutual admiration and affection between Jesus and this scribe. But then thirdly, the answer is refreshing as well. So it's not just the question that's refreshing. It's not just this interaction between the scribe and Jesus that's refreshing. The answer is refreshing as well, because the answer itself answers so many other questions that we might have in a wonderfully refreshing way. Think of the questions that we want answers to. How should I feel about God's law as a Christian? What is God's will for my life? What should I do with my life? What should I do next year? What should I do in 10 years' time? And biggest of all, how can I be saved? This answer that Jesus gives... Is so refreshing because it answers all of these huge questions that Christians have and it answers them all in a wonderfully refreshing way. So that's why I think the atmosphere of this text is one of refreshment. It's refreshing. And all I want to do is just look at Jesus' answer in three parts. What it is, where it is, and what it means. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So if I could ask Debbie to come forward and read our text, which is Mark. 12 verses 28 to 34. Thank you, Debbie. Mark 12, 28 to
1: 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well asked him which commandment is the most important of all jesus answered the most important is hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love your god love the god love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions.
0: Thank you, Debbie. Well, before we turn to the Lord in the text, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding this morning, that we would understand your word truly, and that at understanding it truly, we would know the wonderful freedom that comes through knowing the truth and being set free by the truth. And so may we be set free in greater measure this morning by the truth, by the wonderful reality that your law is love and that your gospel is peace. So bless us this morning. Grant that everything we do would be an expression of love for you and from you. Help us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have three headings. What it is, so what is Jesus' answer to this question, which commandment is the greatest, most important of all? Secondly, where it is, where does Jesus' answer come from? And then thirdly, what it means, so what it means for us today. Firstly, what it is, reading from verse 28 again. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important commandment? There's one central word, isn't there? And it's the word love. The word love. Now the funny thing with words is that it's usually the small ones that are hard to define and it's the big ones that are really easy to define. Big words are usually really easy to define. My favourite example is the word, and I've used this example before, so forgive me if you've heard it, but my favourite example is the word defenestrate. Big, fancy Word, you think, that's going to be really hard to define. It's not hard to define. You know what defenestrate means? It means to throw someone out of a window. And I love the fact that there's a word for that. Because at one point in history, so many people were being thrown out of windows that someone said, you know what, we really need a word for this. <laughs> but the small words, paradoxically, it's the small words that are hard to Define these small words that are huge and big, but also really basic. So they're basic. We know what we mean when we use them, but they're big. They're so big, it's hard to fit into a sentence the richness of their meaning. So take this word, love. It's very basic. My two-year-old daughter knows what this word, love, means. She uses it all the time. She says, I love you with all of your heart. Which is a wonderful phrase. But it's also big. It's so big and rich that even a grown-up struggles to find the right definition. And we know it includes things like affections and emotions as well as action and devotion. But it's hard to capture all of that perfectly. And I think you see that reflected here because Jesus just uses the word love without defining. He just uses the word love. He knows what it means. He knows everyone there knows what it means, and he doesn't bother to define it. So that's the central word. It's this beautifully big but also basic word, love. But Jesus doesn't stop at the word love. He goes further. He touches on different faculties, heart, soul, mind, strength. Now, I don't think we're meant to read this as though there's these sort of sharp distinctions between the heart and the soul and the mind and the strength, instead, I think we meant to read this as everything. Love him with everything. Every part of your being, you are to love him with. So you love him with your emotions. Think of how your emotions feel towards the things and the people that you love. Your family members, your friends, food. How do your emotions feel towards those things? Jesus is implying That's how your emotions should feel towards the Lord. You should love him with your emotions. Love him with your strength. Think of the strength you're willing to exert for the things and the people that you love. That's how you should be towards God. Jesus says love him with your mind. Your thoughts of God should be thoughts of love. Thoughts of he's beautiful, he's lovely." He's wonderful. He's worthy of love. So Jesus touches on all these different faculties. He doesn't stop at the word love. He touches on all these different faculties. But then he also uses the word all. So he goes even further than touching on all the faculties. He says all. Love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And we're not just told to love him with everything. We're told to love him with everything of everything. Love him with all of everything. So that's the first part. The greatest commandment, most important commandment, is loving the Lord to the full using all of your faculties. Love him with everything of everything that you are. Secondly, though, the second part, notice this. Jesus adds this as well. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we don't have the same detail here in terms of heart, soul, mind, strength, because we don't need it, because it's very simple. Jesus says, take the love you have for yourself, and you give it to your neighbor. You put it on your neighbor. You should be as eager to see them blessed as you are to see yourself blessed. You should be as eager to see them helped as you are to see yourself helped. You should be as eager to see them happy as you are to see yourself happy. And it's really interesting that Jesus adds this, because the scribe only asks for one But Jesus adds the other as if to say, they're very much the same thing. They're very much related. They're as one as it were. So that's the greatest command. The greatest command is love. Love for God and neighbor. And that's our first heading. Now, our second heading. Where does Jesus get this from? What I mean is, where is this? In the Bible, what is Jesus referring to as he cites this command? Maybe I can phrase it this way. As you read through the Bible from the beginning, you start on page 1, Genesis 1.1. As you read through the Bible from the beginning, where do you come across this command that Jesus is citing? Where does he get it from? The answer is another small word beginning with hell. The answer is is the word late. It's really interesting when you think about it, but this command that Jesus cites, the most important command of all Jesus says, comes relatively late in Scripture, and I'll explain what I mean. Usually if you have something like commands or rules, the most important one is right up front. right? If you have a rule book, the most important rule isn't on page 98, it's on page 1, it's the first rule. Rule. Think of doctors, for example, um, the, the phrase that you often hear cited with regards to doctors. First, do no harm. Right? That's not actually part of the Hippocratic Oath, but you hear people cite that as being the most important thing in regards to doctors. Here, that's not the case. Here, the most important rule doesn't come on page one. In fact, it doesn't even come in the first book of the Bible. You don't get this from Genesis. Not only that, it doesn't even come from the second book in the Bible. You don't get this from Exodus. Instead, the first part comes from Deuteronomy, and the second part comes from Leviticus. So just think about that. Think about that dynamic. Here's the most important command of all. And to get to it, if you start in Genesis 1 1, you have to dig through a whole load of Bible and a whole load of history before you reach these commands. And, of course, the question is, why? Why is this command, as it were, buried in Scripture? It's not on page one. Why? Why does it come late? I think the answer is actually in the text here. Notice that Jesus doesn't begin by saying, love God. Instead, how does he begin? He begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you just think about what's happening. Jesus is describing the God that they are to love. He's saying, here's who he is. This is what he's like. And and, and you just think about what these words would immediately do. In the minds of those hearing, that would immediately remind them of who the Lord is. In other words, it would immediately bring to their minds all of that Bible and that history that we just talked about Genesis and Exodus and all of what God did in the history of His people. All of that was a revelation of the God they were to love His character, His kindness, His goodness, His justice, His holiness his mercy, his wisdom, his oneness. He is the only true God and there is no other beside him. And only after all of that revelation is given of who God is, then comes the command to love him, that God who has revealed himself to you. But then it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? Who does God reveal himself to be in the Bible? What is his nature? In Genesis, for example, where he creates this beautiful universe, puts a man in this beautiful garden, He gives him a wife, and he says, go for it. Be fruitful and multiply. Eat of every tree in the garden but one. The God who does that, who's that good, Is that kind, who's that beautiful, is the God who is love. It was an expression of his love. And then the fall happens. And God continues to show himself to be the God who is love because instead of judging Adam straight away, he clothes him and he points forward To the gospel. And it's on the heels of that revelation, ultimately, that God is love, that we are then told to love. And that's a wonderfully liberating thing. And that brings us to our third heading what it means. What does this command mean for us today? And how is it refreshing? Firstly, I want to touch on the liberation of God's law. And secondly, the limitation of God's Law in terms of what it means for us today. Firstly, liberation. So Jesus gives his answer. The scribe hears it, and this is his response, reading verses 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more Than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. I said in the beginning that one of the refreshing things that this text does is that it answers other questions, other really big questions as well. And one of those questions, as I said in the beginning, is the question, how should I feel about the law of God? How should I feel about God's law? What should my attitude be towards God's law that can be a really confusing question for christians especially if they've grown up in legalistic households and they've come to understand the gospel and so now when they hear people talking about god's law they feel as though it's sort of inherently negative they feel as though the law is always bad news and it's always a burden law is a bad word now If you don't relate to God's law as you should, there is a sense in which it is a burden, and it is bad news, and we'll get to that. But notice how Jesus' answer strikes the scribe. How does it strike? You get the sense that the scribe is saying these words with the sense of awe and beauty and love. He loves Jesus' answer. And he agrees with it wholeheartedly. Notice he rephrases Jesus' answer and then adds to it. It's as though the scribe has meditated long on Scripture and he's come to this conclusion himself in his own mind and so he puts it into his own words. And again, he does so lovingly, he loves that this is what the law of God ultimately requires. To put it simply, he loves God's law and we should too. We should love God's law. Just think about it. At the heart of God's law is not do this thing that you don't want to do and will never want to do and is just disgusting and revolting and just do it and just bite your tongue. That's not at the heart of God's law. Instead, at the heart of God's law is love the one who is love. See all of these wonderful things that God has done in history for you. See all of these wonderful things that God gives you. See all of the beauty in this universe. All of that is given to you by and is a reflection of the God who is love. And your job, your number one job on this planet, your mission, the most important thing for you to do is to just love him back. Love him back with everything that you are. Isn't that so liberating? And this leads to the other question I mentioned in the beginning. What's the other massive question that people so often ask and are so often vexed by, especially young people, but I don't think it's limited to young people? What's the question? What is God's will for my life? That's the question. What should I do with my life? Such a big question. You hear people say it all the time. I just want to do God's will. I need to find out God's will. Think of Maria's line in The Sound of Music. Remember, the head nun asks her, what's the most important thing that you've learned in the convent? She says, to find out what is the law of the will of God and to do it with all of my heart. And like I say, you hear people say that, especially young people. I need to find the will of God for my life. But what you want to say, what I want to say to that is this. Why do you think God's will for you is different From his law. Why do you think his will for your life is different from the law that he has given you? Why do you think the will of God is something different from the law of God? The answer is it's not. God has told you his will for your life. He has. And it's not marry the specific person, go to the specific place, study the specific thing. It's love him and love your neighbor. And you can do that here in New Zealand as a doctor or a lawyer or a plumber, and you can do it in Timbuktu. You can. Not sure how many plumbers are needed in Timbuktu, but you can do it there as well. So we should love the law of God because it is so liberating. It shows us God's will is something so freeing and beautiful. Love the most lovable being that there is, and if you do that, you're fine. That's all you need to do. As one man said, Love God and do as you please. If you love God, what you please shouldn't be a problem. Then there is something else to say here. And that is that though the law of God is liberating, it is also limited. Notice what Jesus says to the scribe in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Notice what Jesus doesn't say to this scribe. He doesn't say, on the one hand, you are in the kingdom. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, though, you were far from the kingdom. Instead, he says you were not far from the kingdom. So he's not in and he's not far, instead, to phrase it positively, he says, you are near the kingdom. So this man, with what seems to be a love for God's law, isn't in the kingdom yet, but he is close. He's close. And you ask the question, what has brought him close? What hasn't taken him all the way in, but what has brought him close? Close. It's the law. The law has brought him close. And the law, when it's rightly understood, will always bring people close to the kingdom. Just like Moses in the promised land. You think about it. He brought them close. The law brought them close, didn't bring them in. It's the same thing here. The law will always bring people close if it's rightly understood, but it will never take them all the way in. Because if you understand the law of God properly, If you understand, the law requires you, this is your obligation in life, to love God with everything of everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. If that reality settles upon you, that's what I have to do. I have to love him with everything I am every moment of every day and I have to love my neighbor as myself every moment of every day. If that reality settles upon you and goes into your heart as it seems to have gone into this man's heart, it's not long until you realize, I haven't done that. I've broken God's law. I'm a sinner. And if I'm going to get into the kingdom, it can't be through the law because I can never do that fully. Instead, I need a saviour. And that's the other question this text answers. How are we saved? Clearly it's not through the law. Because Jesus doesn't say to this man, you are in the kingdom. He says you are not far. The subtext being what? You need to come closer to me and trust me. Now we don't know if the scribe went on to trust in Jesus. We don't know if the scribe ended up in the kingdom. I suspect he did. But you can know if you were in the kingdom. And you can know for certain if you were in the kingdom. If you believe in Jesus and trust in his love for you, not your love for him. Trust in his keeping of God's law for you, not your keeping of God's law for him. Trust in his death for your failure to keep God's law and not in your work for him. If you do that, you are in the kingdom and you need not fear. Will you pray with me as we close? Our gracious Father, we pray that we would recognize that if we trust Jesus and in his work alone, we are in the kingdom. And we pray that we would, with that wonderful assurance that we are in the kingdom through his work and not ours, that we would get about the work of loving you and loving our neighbors and that our hearts would truly be inflamed with affection for you, that we would love you with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, with all of our strength, recognizing that it's because Jesus did that for us, that we are safe and secure in your grace. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.